My name is Justin Gage, and you're tuned in to the Aquarium Drunkard Transmissions Podcast with your host, Jason Hilder. Welcome back to Transmissions. This week on the show, we're joined by Sam Shepard, AKA Floating Points. Sam's discography is full of beautiful and strange electronic music, bubbling bukalas, skittering beats, and washes of synthesized sound, and even some moody, spacious post-rock. But underneath it all, his roots in jazz hold strong. In 2021, he teamed with the late Pharaoh Saunders, as well as the London Symphony Orchestra, for Promises, a remarkable 46-minute composition broken into nine movements. Though Sam and Pharaoh were separated by decades in terms of their age, their approach is similar. Just as Shepard has moved between genres and styles, so has Pharaoh. His early work with John and Alice Coltrane established him as a dynamic, sometimes frighteningly intense sideman. But his first run of records, including 1969's Karma featuring the immortal The Creator Has a Master Plan, helped set the stage for what we now call spiritual jazz. But Sanders, who passed away in 2022 at the age of 81, cared very little about what genre you filed his records under. I just play whatever I feel like playing, he told The New Yorker in 2020. He stayed restless and creative his entire career. Listen to his playing on Sonny Sherrock's masterful Ask the Ages, or his work with Bill Laswell, and you'll hear exactly what I mean. In 1977, he waded into deeply personal waters with the self-titled album Pharaoh. It's going to be reissued on September 15th by Luwakabop, and it explores new age adjacent sounds, as well as funk and passionate ballads. Though it was a radical departure from what people expected from Pharaoh, it's perfectly in keeping with his unpredictable ethos. Likewise, Promises is hardly a back to basics late career album you might expect an 80 year old artist to make. It's entirely its own thing, a meditative sojourn that relies on silence and space as much as sound. Next week, on September 20th, Floating Points will be joined by Past Transmissions guest Shabaka Hudgens, a saxophonist hand-selected by Pharaoh himself, as well as Caribou, Fortet, the Sun Ra Orchestra, and others for the first ever live staging of Promises at the Hollywood Bowl. Ahead of that show, and you can find a ticket link over at Aquarium Drunkard in the show notes for this episode, Shepard joined me from his studio to discuss his years collecting records making promises, and I even got him to reveal Pharaoh's favorite place to eat in Los Angeles. Before we get into it, I will be in Los Angeles on September 23rd and the 30th. On the 23rd, you can catch me with Hathaleh and Psychic Temple at Gold Diggers in East Hollywood. And then on September 30th, we're hosting a live taping of Transmissions at Manly P. Hall's Philosophical Research Society. We'll be joined by Matt Marble, author of Buddhist Bubblegum, Esotericism in the Creative Process of Arthur Russell, 
I'm really looking forward to joining Matt. He's the host of one of my favorite podcasts of all time, The Secret Sound Podcast. And I'm really, really looking forward to being with him and discussing an artist whose work means so much to me. All right, I hope you will join us. You can find ticket links for those events as well in the show notes of this episode. Uh, I hope you will join us. And without further ado, why don't we get into it? Floating points on transmissions. Transmissions is sponsored and supported by Aquarium Drunkard's Patreon pledgers. So if you like this show and you like what we do and you want to help support it, that's the place to hit up. Patreon. Aquarium Drunkard is creating an online music magazine and we want you to be a part of it. All right, here it is. Sam Shepard of Floating Points. Thank you for being with us on Aquarium Drunkard Transmissions. Sam, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us here on Aquarium Drunkard Transmissions. It's a pleasure to have you. Yeah, thanks for having me. So you are preparing for the first ever live staging of the record that you made with the late great Pharaoh Saunders and the London Symphony Orchestra Promises. Uh, I'm sure all of our listeners have spent time with it, but in case they haven't, it's a single composition spread out over nine movements. What has the process of adapting it for the stage felt like? Uh, well, I mean, we'll find out when I when we rehearse, but it's it's um, it's difficult. <laughs> still, that still hasn't happened. No, so the first rehearsals next week um, in LA, um, and so the way the way we recorded it was, I took the I took the first three instruments: the harpsichord, the celeste, and the piano, and recorded those. I actually recorded them really fast at like 135 BPM. Um, and mm. I played it all the way through. And then I slowed the tape machine down by 25% and got this um, much more sort of a treacly sound that, that became the backbone of the whole piece. And then Pharaoh would do yeah. these, these... Pharaoh and I would, would sort of discuss what the thematic material is. And then he would play these passes over the top of that we i think we did three passes in total and i would play another instrument each overdub and so the overdubs mm. is like fender roads there's a hammond organ there's all sorts of electronics that come in later and 
And so what I need to kind of replicate is like multiple kind of me's doing those things again. But I yeah. think what I really don't want to do is is play it verbatim. I think it would would lose something of of the you know Pharaoh's spirit and the way he he would um, would play. So I think there's there's moments that we you know I'm going to highlight in the score. I've got a verbatim score, but I'm going to sort of highlight moments that we should try and hit. But the rest of it should be kind of played um, with some degree of freedom and and so that's what I think we've got to rehearse is is understanding everyone everyone where everyone's sort of sitting with with that um yeah yeah and that's going to be the big unknown but I'm working with a bunch of of pros so you know everyone that I'm, that's in the band is I'm a a friend of and a fan of so they've definitely right. got right is on them that uh that I think they'll get it uh, frequent collaborators of yours like Forte and Caribou are involved uh, under their given names but you're joined by Shabaka Hutchings who's been on transmissions before he as I understand it that was somebody that Pharaoh uh, particularly would be interested in playing is that is that correct Absolutely. what kind of conversations did you have with him yeah um, it's so nice actually because I've known Shabaka since I was a teenager in in London and um right you know, and Shabaka was in my first band here. Um, wow! Playing the clarinet, actually, um, and uh, he's just like a, an instrument. An instrument that Pharaoh played too, right? right? When exactly. he was young, yeah. yeah. And so Shabaka's just like a, an amazing musician, and and such a, a warm spirit. And Pharaoh loved his playing. Um, Pharaoh would always ref- ask ask after. Um, our friend Shabaka and ask uh, how he's doing and he always says he plays big and strong like a lion were his words um, yeah so that that's it's really sweet that um, that Pharaoh was a was a fan of Shabaka he's also a friend of mine and, and a friend of Pharaoh's and so it seemed kind of appropriate um, yeah that in um, after because Pharaoh and I had actually started discussing doing this one and only show of promises in Ferris hometown of LA. And, and so the bowl was the venue we were talking to about doing it. And, and sadly Pharaoh passed away before we had a chance to realize it. And so, um, yeah, this, this shows sort of as much a kind of a promise to, to, to see through that show and, um, and celebrate Pharaoh, just a sort of tiny vignette of Pharaoh's, musical world with people that, yeah. that 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 pharaoh both liked and also people that love pharaoh and so it feels i feel it feels good doing it i thought it was so poetic seeing that the sun Ra orchestra will be a part of it because it's poetic on two levels one sun Ra bestowed pharaoh's name yep. on him he gave him his moniker so you've got that kind of cosmic connection there but then two the orchestra continuing on and continuing to explore the music that Sun Ra made and then create new music you know inspired by him to me that speaks to kind of what you guys are doing with this show as well right which is 
continuing the work. And the idea of not wanting to play it verbatim seems like it is very much rooted in Pharaoh's own sense of musicality and sort of I take it when you were saying he was doing these passes over the the motif that forms the backbone of the track I take it each pass was a little different right it's not like he was playing things uh straight the same way each time or or were there motifs that you found him returning to each time um there were motifs yeah that that he was returning to yeah and um and yeah that's that's very um astute of you to say that yeah that, that that's kind of why we we wanted the Sunra orchestra because every time i've seen them um it's been different it's been exciting and it's um and it it feels like um yeah a continuation of the spirit of of what i imagine Sunra would have would have have had uh, when when he was in the band um so yeah this is yeah this was kind of the, it was a it was a definitely a, a choice that uh, you know th- those those points that you raised were exactly why i thought it, it would would make sense well so i know that pharaoh got introduced to your work in 2015 that was the story that accompanied the record's release when it when it did that he he heard your first album and wanted to meet you because he he really enjoyed it but i'm curious when you first got into pharaoh's work how long does your listening uh go back with him i i've been listening to pharaoh mm, since i was at school probably um and yeah, I think I don't. I wonder what the first record would have been, but it would have been one of my, my piano teacher probably showing me his work. I remember, you know, having his records as a kid. Mm. Um, but it wasn't until I started going to clubs in London um, when Pharaoh's music really changed the context of of it. Changed. I think this is a pretty unique uh, situation. I I. I was into Ferrer's music on a sort of jazz level as a sort of listener. Um, and then I started going to this club called Plastic People and DJs like Theo Parrish would be there every month. And Ade, the guy who owned the club would be there. Um, and he was, he was always, they're all both, you know, DJing amazing music, everything from kind of um, quote unquote, like club music to music that wasn't club music, but the context in which they played sure. it, it became club music. And so that's where I heard some records that I knew. So there's records I didn't know that were being played, like dance music, Larry heard, you know, and, and I'd be like, wow, this is changing my life. And then there's records that I knew that I only knew in the context of listening to those records. So, you know, it'd be like a... a you know the Beatles revolver or something like this and and Marvin Gaye what's going on and and one of those records that got played a lot down there was um Pharaoh Sanders you've got to have freedom and and um uh love is everywhere and and, and records like this that, that weren't club yeah. records they weren't disco records they weren't designed for the uh, dance floor and yet here were 200 people dancing like crazy to um, you know what is a, a a jazz record that I would listen to calmly at home, 
Um, so, so I think sure the context there that changed everything for me. And I, I remember the the day Plastic People closed. Um, Ade Ade hadn't been DJing at the club for a while. He'd been in in Lagos, and um, and he came back. And in the, I I used to kind of look after the sound system at Plastic People for a few years, and um, so I knew the sort of the back rooms of Plastic People really well. And Ade came back on the last day, yeah. and and he's like, oh, I I left a bag of records like tucked in this corner you know, by, by the sewage drains and all that stuff. And I was like, okay, <laughs> yeah. So he pulled out this box and I was like, whoa, there's a bag of records here. And he had two sealed copies of, um, of uh, Harvest Time in there. And he's like, do you wow. know this one? I was like, no, 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 I don't know. He's like, oh, you, you need to listen to this. And he cracked open a copy and played it on the last, um, on the sort of, it was like a closing party for the club. Um, and and he played that and he's like, here you go. You, you should have this record. And that's how I got my copy of Harvest Time was from Ade giving it to me. And and that, that opened a new wow. door to Pharaoh's world uh, with me because like it was it's such a, a different record to his others. Um, yeah. yeah, no kidding. Yeah, it's it's an it's, it's an interesting introduction for sure. And that's so that's the record that Luakabop is prepping a reissue of. And um, they just shared a song from it right. today. I, I had read I had read an interview with you in The Guardian where they were talking about a DJ set you had done and how you dropped Harvest Time in there, which is, of course, a great song, but it's also a 20-minute yeah. song, right? And right. Uh, and so that, to me, I, I, I thought about that. I A lot of times we have a show uh, every, once a month, Aquarium Drunkard hosts four hours on Dub Lab, and a lot of times on my segment, Range and Basin, I'll play long mm. tracks, like, you know, 20 minute, mm. half hour, in some cases, 40 minute tracks, depending. I only have an hour, so I don't always get a lot of them in. But I think about how for online radio, I'm thinking, yeah, these are people hanging out, chilling out, listen, a long one's going to work. But to play a long one in a live setting like that, it's interesting to hear you talk about that yeah. context and talk about how that music took on, I have to imagine, a very different tone but at the same time every time i saw pharaoh live i got to see him i think three mm. times and every time i was always taken aback by how he could go from sonorous in one phrase to kind of unhinged in the next yeah you know what yeah. i mean and and when he passed away i spent a lot of time thinking about why is an album, you know, like Themby or whatever. You know, if I think about that record or Black Unity, it's like, what do I love? And I think I love the proximity of that kind of scary edge to what he can do uh, right up against just these gorgeous melodies. And I think that's probably what somehow that is the, kind of at the core of his of his approach. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. It's funny with the... Um, <laughs> the the story of of me playing harvest time at the club it wasn't it wasn't uh the story gets more outrageous it wasn't even just any club it was the main room at Berghain. um and okay. it was the groove groove magazine um i don't know some anniversary party for groove <laughs> magazine i had assumed because every time i've played at Berghain, i've played in panorama bar the smaller 
uh, sort of room on the on the side, and um, when when I arrived there and the the staff are sort of walking me to the the room. I'm going a different direction. I was like, oh, I usually go that way. And they, they take me into this yeah. booth in the main room of the, the venue. So I was definitely shocked to be playing uh, in the in the Berghain. And I was after Mark Inestus, and he was just playing the most, you know, ama- I love Mark Inestus. And, and he was playing all this dub, uh, sort of electronic dub uh, music and I thought I I need to just like calm everything down, and so I played that, and I played. I was gonna play a bit of it, but actually I was enjoying it so much, and the sound of in that room, this giant cathedral of techno. Yeah. Suddenly having that just uh, wafting through it, and it was you know five o'clock in the morning or something. It was, it was such a good moment, and um, and it you know it. I think I played Robert Hood out of it. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Very, very, very different. Um, yeah. Good, good time. Yeah. That's fantastic. Mm. I thought, I think that, you know, I'm somebody who I really, of course, love maybe the first, the first five years of Pharaoh's career are just so incredible. And so inspiring, uh, you know, coming out of his work, of course, with John and Alice Coltrane, uh, continuing his work with Alice Coltrane, but you know, he, his his discography is 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 really vast and i don't think that it's often explored uh as much as um you know fans and critics maybe tend to to focus on their sweet spot a little bit more but when promises came out i found myself going back and listening to a lot of pharaoh some of the stuff he did with bill laswell and i realized maybe his interest in quote unquote electronic music um, which was sort of when when promises came out, I think that was a tag that a lot of people hung their hat on, like, oh, it's like Pharaoh meets electronic music or whatever. But yeah, I wonder if maybe that interest goes back farther, or if you could maybe help shine a little light on maybe just how little a shit Pharaoh gave about genre names. Does that is that a fair way to put it? Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the, he he's in his he's an he was an elderly man yeah who who didn't didn't have time to be just like chatting away saying loads of words it, you know he was yeah um he was quite quiet in that sense and um and he he did a lot of he listened all the time he was always just like listening to 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 sound and finding music in sound and this is what he would explain to me you know he he's like you're just sitting in the garden and um, the, we'd sit in the garden studio by a, a studio garden by a by a grapefruit tree, listening to the birds, and um, he'd just like then start like singing along with them, and out of nowhere, and there's kind of beautiful moments like like this. And I was in the studio, you know, with this sort of Buchler system and all these synthesizers as a Oberheim four voice and and we're just sort of making all these sounds in in the studio and um, he would just be sitting there just chilling out listening away and then he would pick up his saxophone and play something that was so meaningful to what was going on 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 the on the speakers and, and you know such strange noises and and then another 
another moment when I gave him the headphones from the the Buchler and and this stuff. I mean, this is all we recorded so much more than is released. Sure. Um, and and so that we've got whole tracks where it's just Pharaoh listening to the Buchler and him him playing along and him playing into the Buchler and kind of affecting the frequency modulation or whatever. And you know, this is all kind of these are all super futuristic y kind of sounds using yeah all these fancy Buchler modules and um you know all their new uh, kind of digital modules and you know he's hearing sounds he's not heard before but he's playing into it and he's and he's you know laughing away and having fun with it um and i can only imagine if i'm 80 years old and i someone sort of hands me a new instrument and i'd just be like i'm not <laughs> not interested <Yeah. laughs> and he was always interested in exploring in, in exploring new sounds and that was it was so cool yeah working with him you know yeah, I think about how uh, how easy it is to uh, become uninterested in having to learn new things, one, you know, as we get yeah. older. We all struggle with that to yeah. some degree or another. But I think yeah. it speaks to the kind of openness. I mean, the same kind of openness that would maybe compel him to live. He's not even necessarily uh, blowing into the horn. He's using the horn as a sort of uh, acoustic, uh, somatic uh something or other you know because he's just blowing in air or or manipulating the pads on the horn so that that's what you're hearing it's become a percussive thing i think that that he did a a really incredible interview in the new yorker in 2020 with nathaniel friedman and he said he asked him what he was listening to and he was like i don't listen to to, i don't listen to music and he kind of pushed him as i think a good interviewer must and and Farrah was like no like i he said i listened to Things that maybe some guys don't. I listen to waves of the water, train coming down. I listen to an airplane taking off. And I think, like, yeah, to think of uh, the the world in musical terms like that is so incredible. And then, one, I'm fascinated to hear all the stuff that you guys left off the record. And uh, I'm sure I'm <laughs> not alone in that. But two, one of the things that I thought was so m- marvelous about Promises was it's what it required of me the listener which was to sit down and listen to it like you could it's 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 um eno talks about how ambient music could be enjoyed passively or um actively you know but i thought the record asked for something in return and it wasn't I didn't know what to expect, but going in not expecting anything, I just found it to be such a remarkable a piece of work. And, you know, the quote that gets attributed to Miles Davis all the time is, it's not about what notes you play, it's about the notes you don't. And on one hand, that sounds like gibberish, and I think it's like, <laughs> I think it's like a goofy and frustrating thing, and often pulled out by people who sort of drop it with an air of like smug satisfaction, but also probably couldn't really explain it. Um, uh, including myself probably right but yeah, i'm going to use that one yeah. <laughs> but at this because yeah it's perfect right but at the same time uh pharaoh's silence is just as crucial as his playing in terms of understanding promise promises you know and his uh his willingness to wait and to like you said play off of what he was hearing and not just what he was hearing but what he was internally synthesizing it's it's just it's fascinating to me yeah i like the the towards the end when the electronics really kind of 
take off. Um, he's yeah, you can hear him just playing the pads of his yeah saxophone, and and when you listen to the what the Buchler's doing at that point, and it's a classic like Buchler bongo sound, like and he's just he's basically trying to join in with the Buchler, yeah, and he's making the same sound just by pressing the pads really gently and i I feel like who's gonna have that yeah instinct to do that and to join in with something that is so alien right a sound and and then you know he's listening to these arpeggios that are gradually getting more furious and faster and then he lets out the the you know to to date the in the studio it was like the biggest like tsunami of power into his horn right and you know you feel the whole building shake at that point when he when he played that moment and um you know and then that that was kind of the 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 peak in terms of sort of spl from Farah the the whole the whole week we're in the studio there um and you know, i'm so glad we we caught that and and the electronics kind of built up to that point where he unleashed um in concert with the electronics. I love I love that moment. Putting your music up online is not always the easiest thing in the world to figure out, but DistroKid makes music distribution fun and easy with unlimited uploads and as an artist, you keep 100% of your royalties and earnings. A million plus artists rely on DistroKid to get their music into Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube, TikTok, Tidal, Instagram, all the major streaming services. You can use it to edit your lyrics and your song credits. So important in the internet age to let people know the kind of people you're collaborating with. And uh, DistroKid makes that easy. You can also see all your stats from the streamers and, of course, add a credit card to purchase album extras. The DistroKid app is available now on iOS and Android. Go to the app or Play Store to download it. Something that I read in an interview is that uh, at least for maybe, I don't know if this is the studio where you're at right now, but uh, you often just keep a recorder rolling at almost all all times. Is that is that accurate? Yeah, I mean, like like I am now. It's just like a little thing that's able to just capture um, whatever's going through my desk at any point, and it's it's really handy because the thing I worry about here is that there's all this gear, there's all this stuff that's into a patch bay, and then I'm like, oh, I need to, I want to record this, and to do that, you know, I have to like set up a channel in Logic and right you know, arm the preamp and make sure that the EQ setting's right. And if sometimes you don't have time for that in your, in your brain box, so you just have to <laughs> hit one button and it's just, it's just listening. And then you can deal with making it sound better later on. Was that the approach when you were in the studio with Pharaoh? Were you essentially running tape almost the entire time? No, <laughs> that was, it was, it was much more, it was inten- a bit more yeah, intentional. There's intent, but there's also a bit more, this patience you know that, that um and also sean was um was the engineer that we were working with there and you know he's a mega pro you could just see 
he had like a third eye that was always <laughs> kind of figuring out when hang on are we does Pharaoh want to do a take? And I'd be like, I'd be looking at Sean, like we should hit record. And he's like, it's already recording, dude. Like, uh, yeah. <laughs> so, so he he had everything under control. I think it's because I'm not professional in the studio that I need a uh, some sort of you know, record anything um, button. Right. That makes that makes a cer- that makes a certain amount of sense. I, I get it for sure. Uh, something that I I I just I I think about how. To me, promises has an air of spiritual power. There's there's a spiritual dimension to the record, um, and I'd read somewhere that you're not always uh, comfortable <laughs> uh, using the word spiritual to describe your own worldview. Does that still hold? Um, absolutely. Um, I. It's the thing I am. Um... I uh, battle with in in music is that I I love more than anything the music inspired by any kind of spiritual belief um, and yet I am um, I'm not religious yeah and um, and at the same time you know I I can be listening to music inspired or not by um, some sort of spirituality and have myself some sort of existential, almost spiritual experience. And, and so that will forever remain a mystery to me. And I hope it does as well. Um, well, yeah, because there's some beauty in the in the the um, the nebulous nature, right? I mean, that's that's one yeah. of the reasons why I like the word spirituality sometimes more than religion, although both have their utility and their necessity, of course. But yeah, I, I, I kind of can't help but like the fuzzier <laughs> the fuzzier edges of of spirituality, you know, because it it yeah. leaves a little bit more room for the thing you're talking about, but you're talking about having profound experiences listening to music. And I have to imagine that that was something that happened probably at multiple times, you know, making, making promises. Is that fair to say? Um, there was a moment when Pharaoh had done his first pass on, on the record and we just took the desk mix, um, just the, the, the program bus. We just had a sort of rough recording of it. And my friend Stella, who's, um, musician drummer in war paint was um, sure. just passed by she passed by the studio that evening um and it was a really hot evening in 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 la and um we had maybe a day off afterwards and stella was like let's go let's just like like drive out to she's got a house out in joshua tree so we just like raced down there and we i was like i've got I've got like a record. I've got something here. I think I've, I've, I've got a recording here. So I was me and Stella and Eric, who Eric, who's working at the Wackabop. We're all just like Stella parked the car up at the bottom of um, Mount Nebo in um, Joshua Tree. Mm. And um, we flung the doors of the car open. And by this point, the sun was just setting and we played it for the first time in the car stereo. And, and we just sat there and we were like, all looked at each other like, 
this is the record this is it yeah. and and i think that was probably um in terms of my experience of this record um because in the process of actually making the record it can sometimes feel somewhat clinical like i'm i'm not necessarily always having a i was definitely enjoying making this record and um and there's some funny um tales of why i use certain instruments and um that you know kind of almost render the render the choice meaningless but but it, you know it's uh it's what i think we did with them it's it's kind of the sum of it it's kind of worked out quite nicely um and and yeah that that moment of listening to it in the car with stella was was probably the most um uh moving for for me as because i i it was so fresh in my head that yeah um hearing it played back felt like i was listening to it for the first time really um well that's and that's fantastic yeah and and really crucial because like you said i mean you can't be in an ecstatic reverie the entire time that you're working on a project (laughs) Um, or maybe maybe some people could uh most of us it's not a sustainable uh quality (laughs) (laughs) um but at the same time uh being able to step aside from the work or or hear it as one might just listening to it, you know, not being involved in it. I mean, that's that's such an incredible, that's such an incredible thing, and it's something that, you know, I I I'm tempted. I mean, I'm curious what you mentioned that Pharaoh wasn't a guy who was chit chatty per se. Uh, and when I saw him, one of the times I saw him was in Marfa at Marf- Marfa Myths, which was a really great festival, 2017. Yeah, nice. Yeah, and yeah. and he performed, and you know. Rob Mazurik was there from Exploding Star Orchestra and Eileen Miles, the great writer, they were there and it was it was fantastic watching Pharaoh in essentially some sort of gymnasium, I think it was. Anyway, it was mind blowing. Uh but there had been some talk, maybe Pharaoh will uh you know, let you talk with him for a few minutes for an interview because I was recording podcast stuff out there and uh right. and when I kind of arrived, I, I inquired and it was like a very quick brusque, like Pharaoh's not interested in doing it. Uh, anyway, moving on. You know? <laughs> and, uh, and it's not that I could blame him, you know what I mean? Uh, in any, in right. any way, but I'm curious just what he was like, you guys are in this moment together. You're working on a thing for an extended period of time. You have a lot of time together. What was some of the downtime with with Pharaoh like? I mean, could he be a pretty funny guy? Could he be, you know, what what kind of interactions did you have that were maybe non-musical that are, you know, that you feel comfortable sharing? I'm not trying to get you to reveal everything, oh, you know. Uh, yeah, I mean, he's he's a complete joy. Like he, you know, he's um uh he, he was he had, you know, he's kind of injured his hip a little bit um going into the recording and so you know, we weren't exactly running around the block, but he's, he's, um, you know, he, he was really kind of patient, um, in his moves and, um, we spent, uh, yeah, I mean, just a lovely time hanging out with him and stories that he would tell and, you know, referring to <laughs> musicians by their first name. And I'd be like, you mean... John is in, okay, yeah. yeah, that John, right. and and it's like moments where I'd be pinching myself. And actually, one of the pieces, um, one of the pieces of music I, um, that that I wrote for 
for Pharaoh, I, I kind of come up with this um, this piece for piano. It's kind of a five four thing for piano and, and saxon. Um, I had like a full on out of body experience kind of playing that because I was sitting there playing it and and had this moment where I was like, this sounds like it sounds like a Pharaoh kind of tune. It sounds like a Pharaoh Sanders record. I mean, I guess part of the process of of getting to the point of making promises, we went through lots of different, um, lots of hanging out and lots of making music and lots of jamming, lots of stuff that is just, you know, not worth listening to all sorts of things we got. Um, and, but one moment where I think I had done some kind of pastiche, uh, Pharaoh song. And, and I had a moment where I was like, this sounds like a Pharaoh Sanders record. And I kind of didn't even, wasn't even kind of fully aware yeah, <laughs> that it was, um a Ferris Sands record. And and so yeah, I had uh sorry, that's not actually really answering your question, but um <laughs> It's okay, it's great. Fer, f- yeah, yeah, fer, I mean the the thing that Fer and I definitely shared is that he loves to eat. So um you know, we had great meals together. So in fact when, when he came to London I would kind of um be looking out for him whilst he's here and he's always really keen to go for Vietnamese food, so yeah, he's, That's awesome. he's always yeah asking uh asking can we go to this spot? Can we go to this spot? So, um, yeah, we we definitely ate well. Yeah, did he he had some he had some LA favorites? Um, Langers, Langers, cool. <laughs> Langers. I mean, it's not Thai, but like, uh, not not Vietnamese. Sorry, but like yeah, yeah. Langers was was a a big one for us, and uh, yeah. Oh, that we we went there a lot. A lot. <laughs> no, that's so fantastic. Well, something that yeah. I wanted to ask you about uh, w- that I found just so fascinating was obviously you you are often, uh, especially when your records first started coming out, people couldn't get over the fact that you were uh, essentially a very learned person. Uh, you've got a PhD in neuroscience and and epigenetics. Is that right? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So most of us podcasters and music writers are used to talking to people who can barely string sentences together. And as, as, as those sorts of people, we feel comfortable, but so you're a smart guy. And something that I thought was really interesting was when I was reading about all the different stuff that you've been a part of, what struck me just as fascinating as your education was that you spent a lot of time collecting records. Like, a formative kind of amount of time collecting records, right? You would organize trips to the U.S. to come out here and essentially crate dig. Is that right? Um, yeah. I mean, yeah. There's that's there's this uh, system in the U.K. that um, if you go to college, they give you um, like a loan of money, um, and so every term, you know, it'd be like a thousand pounds would land in my account and. I would immediately just spend that on a flight to Chicago and then figure it out the rest of the term. Yeah. And it was, it's because I think I, I didn't, I wasn't really into records. I didn't really care for them. It's just like, I think um, if I'd started, if if the internet had existed a little bit before, then I'd probably be, you know, one of these Napster kids that, that just, because I, I just wanted the music. And, sure. Um, at the time that 
I was kind of getting into just trying to discover everything about, I don't know, Hank Mobley, I'd be like, well, the, in Manchester, I was living in, in the centre of Manchester, and um, your dad's just sold his record collection to buy CDs. And um, and so all those records are just sitting in in these second-hand shops. And so I'd be going to Final Exchange in Manchester and buying, I don't know, an entire horror jazz collection you know, with Curtis Amy playing trombone, like with for 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 nothing because um, they they weren't worth anything because everyone just was. I felt like that's what it felt like at least. And then the same thing kind of happened when I go down to Peabody's in um, South Chicago, and and Mark and Mike would just would just teach me everything about you know soul and disco and the records I. I was just—I was so desperate to get the music, and um, yeah, so I just—I'd go over to Detroit occasionally as well, and um, and it's funny because I felt like back then I was really going to the places where those, um, you know, I, I wanted to get the like—I was really I got really deeply into techno or whatever, and so I would go to where the dance mania records were from and, and I would find them there K Stark and I would go to Detroit and be picking up all the model 500, you know, uh, and Drexia records. They would just be kind of in the ether. I feel like things with the internet now, it's a bit more, um, homogenous, a little sure. bit, uh, you know, it's, um, but that was just out of necessity, I guess at the time. And, and I, yeah, I guess then I started to like records and, I don't know. I'm a <laughs> bit of a ball and chain. The, yeah, <laughs> the, the records now. I completely understand, uh, but I but I know what you mean. So you're talking. This would have been the the late '90s, early 2000s, or 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 little... this would be early 2000s. Yeah. Yeah, and um, it's funny because that's about when I started collecting records too. And for me, it really was also about access to the music. Uh, even though the internet mm. existed, it wasn't what we think of now, and you yeah. needed to go to places where this stuff existed and try to find people who knew what it was, you know? And that, to me, yeah, right. yeah. it also, of course, the other element of it that you alluded to was that you could get this stuff for very little money. Now it's a very expensive habit, uh, but it used to be yeah. when I started, and this is what I tell myself, Some, I guess this is why I say it's okay that I keep buying so many records, but um, <laughs> was that it was, it was it was cheap and you could get access to this stuff. And to me, I, I like when you're talking about going into shops and having them sort of school you, the people there, I know exactly what you're talking about. I worked at a record store yeah. and often on my lunch breaks, yeah. I would run across the street to another record store and you know spend time there so it was like when the guy would i remember i bought a, a shunny a sunny chirac record and mike at Eastside records was like hey this is a great record but it wasn't cheap you know uh he was like yeah he was like if you're ever looking to score a bunch of sunny chirac music you know pick up these Herbie Mann records and he like wrote them out for me. You know what I mean? And it was like, right. well, you could find that shit in a yeah. dollar bin, you know? And all of a sudden yeah. I was yeah. realizing, wait a minute, somebody's doing absolutely far out stuff on a Herbie Mann record. Like what else have I dismissed that is awesome, you know? And so yeah, to me, what you're talking about, it's so fascinating. And I think that 
you know, because you're somebody who, in addition, of course, to your your own music, you often DJ, and that's another part of the way you express yourself musically. And and I wonder, in those early days when you were collecting, was DJing a part of the vision too? Uh, and was that something that you felt like drawn to? Again, it, it wasn't really. I, I I at university, I kind of ended up getting sucked into being into doing to doing parties because I had the records and um i you know was quite into house music and really into jungle um and so i had these tunes and so i'd be you know doing parties um at uni and then you know was going out a lot um and i remember sending a, a jungle mix to the end and then mr c called me up and was like do you want to warm up Vandy c on friday and i was like i actually thought it was one of my flatmates trolling me yeah so i I hung up on him and then he called me back and he's like, it's really me. And so I did it and yeah, I played and I was playing all my own stuff as well. And, um, and then I started my own party and then eventually moved it to plastic people. And, and still like back then the CDJs didn't sound good enough mm. really. So, you know, and, and I didn't think I even cared that much about the fidelity of stuff, but plastic had such a good sound system. And when you played records there, they sounded so excellent um now i think things are very different and you know i think the 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 cdj sounds amazing on on big systems so i'm in a weird um phase where like i i quite like playing digitally as well because it's it's you know the stuff sounds so good yeah Uh, so i'm a bit more agnostic about the whole digital uh, and, and analog thing they both sound pretty good. Yeah, I mean, and you're somebody who uses uh, elements of both consistently in your own work, right? I mean, I often wonder why yeah. the why the line gets drawn. It, I actually don't think the line gets drawn by most people, actually. I think most people are completely comfortable saying, we're going to take from analog, we're going to take from digital, we're going to take from whatever yeah. we need to make cool cool yeah. sounds right but do you remember yeah. that being yeah. more of a i do remember going to parties uh and and like if the dj wasn't spinning vinyl there would be some some impolite chatter about how they were you know kind of uh <laughs> kind of yeah I like maybe it. over the past 10 years there may have been may have been that that um that discussion has just kind of become obsolete because no one can deny how good digital uh, playback sounds now. Sure. So, um, you know, I've got the two-inch tape machines and it's still got, there's a half-inch tape machine still runs in my studio um, to master to, but I don't know, I've got, the digital stuff sounds so good now and it's so easy, you know, to just put it on that and um, I don't have to then post it to my uh, mastering engineer. I can just, email right. him a Dropbox link and so, you know it doesn't and the difference is so minute right um right I don't yeah I'm not sure if it really matters so um yeah I mean the promises was done on was done on digital right it was recorded at a very low sample rate and then slowed down I mean it's kind of offensive <laughs> actually it's probably it's like 30,000 uh, samples a second basically yeah. i don't i don't i don't i don't think it i don't think that offensive is the is the word but i know what you mean and i think it's i think it's really i think it's great yeah yeah 
Yeah, I mean, I think some uh, hi-fi enthusiasts might be surprised to know that it's not um, it's not the most fidel- high-fidelity recording. Uh, actually, that's not entirely true. There's just elements of the um, right the original recording that I didn't record at, at particularly high sample rates, and then eventually built it up around that at, at a better quality. But right, um, the the backbone to it was definitely it was recorded at 44 and then slowed down, and then um, from there we built built up a well you know sean the en- engineer did did start everything back at a good level because uh, yeah you could see how unprofessional i was <laughs> doing everything well uh i think you should keep your keep keep it keep doing it the way you're doing it because it seems like it's working very very well and that it's resulting in great stuff but gosh it's cool to have people around to help uh with the professionalism i know so uh (laughs) sam thank you so much for taking the time to hang out and talk about uh not only the work that you made with pharaoh but um but your own your own process and uh, i really appreciate you you giving us this time very kind jason thank you nice to speak to you All right, that's going to do it this week. Thanks so much for being with us on Aquarium Drunkard Transmissions. I'm Jason P. Woodbury. I produce, write, and host the show. Transmissions is edited by Andrew Horton. Art for the show this week was assembled by Thomas Wilson. Our music comes from Frank Mastin, drawn from his discography of gorgeous library sounds. Find more by visiting mastin.bandcamp.com. The show's executive producer is Justin Gage. He founded Aquarium Drunkard way back in 2005. Don't miss his weekly radio program, The Aquarium Drunkard Show, on Sirius XMU, Channel 35 at 7 p.m. Pacific Time, each and every Wednesday. That's right, transmissions drops early in the day, and then you can close out your Wednesday night with The Aquarium Drunkard Show on Sirius. Transmissions is part of the TalkHouse Podcast Network. Visit the TalkHouse for more interviews, fascinating reads, and podcasts. We have been working with the great folks at TalkHouse on a special mini-series, which you've no doubt noticed in your feed. No Way Out, an oral history of sunburn hand of the man. It was curated and produced by J. Kelly Davis, and we're so glad to be working with TalkHouse to bring that show to you. We're talking about all sorts of other cool mini-series ideas, so now would be a good time to check out the Patreon Hit us up over there and pledge your support so you can help to support all of the different projects that Aquarium Drunkard has in the various fires. Irons in the fires. I don't know why I phrased it that way. Anyway, we'll be back soon. Next week on the show, for real this time, Jarvis Tarvenier of Woods. I kind of screwed up and mixed things up. I said he was going to be on the show this week, but nope, he'll be on the show next week to talk about the fantastic new album from his legendary band Woods, as well as a lot more. I hope you will join us then. In the meantime, be well. This transmission is concluded.